done is we've uh, taken 12 stages in the Bible. These aren't unique to me. These are from a book by Max Sanders, 30 Days to Understand the Bible. It's a, it's a great book. We've used it evangelistically in our family uh, many, many times. And we've started with the creation. God's dealing with the world. We looked at Genesis 1-11 through 11 and saw how God created a world perfect. He put Adam and Eve in the garden. And yet, in Genesis chapter 3, deceived by Satan, they sinned and ate of the fruit and rebelled against the Lord. And then God cast them out of the garden. And as a result of that, sin came and brought death to the entire human race. All of us die. Moses, or the time of Noah destroyed the earth with a flood because of the wickedness of man. That's what happened in the Genesis, the creation phase. Then we looked at the patriarchs. About 2000 BC is when it began. This isn't God's dealing with everybody, it's the creation is, but this is God's dealing with His people, starting in Genesis chapter 12 with the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant. God made a promise to Abraham that He would make him a great nation, that He would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And the promise to Abraham, the patriarch, came through the patriarchs Isaac and Jacob, and then the twelve sons of Israel. And through them, then, to us as believers in Christ. His promises have come. And at the end of the patriarchs was the Exodus. This took place about 1400 B.C. This is when um, Israel found themselves in slavery in Egypt. And in bondage, they cried out to the Lord. God remembered His covenant they had made with Abraham and He brought them out of the land with mighty signs and wonders, redeeming them. And their redemption is a picture of our redemption. In slavery and then brought to freedom. And then we looked at the conquest. This essentially is the book of Joshua, which records how the Israelites came into the land and they conquered the land, starting with Jericho, and they failed at Ai, but then they began to conquer Ai and took the southern kingdoms and then took the northern uh, people there in the land. We see, though, that Israel failed. They didn't take the whole land. And anything they accomplished was only by the power of God. After the conquest comes a sad period of history called the Judges. Uh, the Judges were given in Israel so as to help deliver the people of Israel in their distress. And the Judges certainly helped and delivered the people, but after they were delivered and the Judge was gone, then the people returned to their wickedness and then they cried out to the Lord, but every time they get more and more and more wicked so that the end of Judges says every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so Israel, beginning the kingdom stage, about 1000 B.C., says, hey, we need a king. And um, Samuel said, no, you don't need a king. And they said, yes, we need a king. He said, God is your king. And they said, no, we want an earthly king. He said, well, you've rejected your king. And they received Saul, who they liked, tall, dark, and handsome, but he failed them. And then there was David, a man after his own, God's own heart, who was good, but fell in sin as well. And Solomon, who could have reigned well because of his wisdom, failed in his latter days. But they reigned over the United Kingdom. And then after the days of Solomon, the kingdom was divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel in 722 B.C. was destroyed by the Assyrians. Just wiped out, taken many captive back to Assyria. The land was filled in with many foreigners. But Judah was carried into exile into Babylon. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. We're looking at the exiles. So we're in the the seventh stage, uh, over, the, over the hump. I mean, it looks like we're in St. Louis, doesn't it? Right, with the ark. And we're just over the hump, ready to, ready to go down. We're looking this morning at the exile. And, and I, I need to tell you this morning that um, of all the messages I've prepared in this series, the creation, patriarchs, exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, this is by far the most difficult in some measure, I think it's because I know about the creation, I know about the patriarchs, I know about the exodus, I know about the conquest, I know about the judges, I know about the kingdom. And I am not as familiar with the exodus. And so I trust as we open up the exodus, I trust that perhaps you're probably not as familiar with the exodus either, so it will be helpful to you all. Well, we need to sing our song because we've done that every time. So here we go. Twelve stages in the Bible, let's learn them one by one. Yeshun, patriarchs, exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, da 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 da, da. silence, gospel. Church and missions. All right. 
Well, we're going to begin exile by looking at the beginning. It's my first point in my outline this morning, at the beginning. I mean by that, at the beginning of the exile. And if you will, open your Bibles to 2 Kings 24. So we're going to work through 24 and 25. It tells the story of the exile. As you remember last week, I told you 1 Samuel deals with Saul. 2 Samuel deals with David. 1 Kings deals with Solomon and begins a divided kingdom. And then 2 Kings deals with the whole divided kingdom. We're coming right to the end of 2 Kings, which ends with the exile, which is the beginning of the exile. When the exile took place, it didn't take place at one time. Like I said, Israel was destroyed in 722 B.C., but the exodus of the, the, the exile of Judah, though, happened in three waves. If you want to write some dates down, you can do this. The first was in 605 B.C., the second was in 597, and the third one was in 587. Like, three ways. Babylon came and conquered some took back, did some things, and came and conquered again, and came back, and then 586 B.C., that's the one to remember, they came and thoroughly conquered Babylon at that point. And we will see it here. In the beginning of chapter 24, we see the first wave coming. Jehoiakim had been king in Judah. Judah wasn't an independent state at that time. It was on its decline. Actually, was was governed by uh, Egypt. And so the, the governor, the kings of um, Judah, had to pay tribute to Egypt in order to stay alive. Otherwise, Egypt would have come up and conquered them, but their, um, their tribute they paid was sufficient. But in 605, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, conquered Egypt, and then, by inference, also then conquered Judah as well. It says this, 24 verse 1, In his, day, in his days, that is Jehoiakim's days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah at that time, became his servant for three years. And then he turned and rebelled against him. So Nebuchadnezzar came up against Judah, against Jehoiakim, and then for three years Nebuchadnezzar ruled Jehoiakim. And at the end of three years he said, that's enough. Rebelled against the king. He wanted free of the tyranny. But that was not to be the case because God says, you're not going to be free. You're not going to get off. The Lord said in verse 2, the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Arameans, bands of Moabites, and the bands of the Ammonites. And so he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Joachim's rebellion was not successful. Instead, God brought up all these other surrounding nations orchestrated by Babylon to come and rule over Judah. Notice how it is that came about. It was the Lord who sent them. And according to the words He had spoken through His servants, the prophets. You know, in some sense, we're going to look today at the beginning of the exile, but really, one of the things that was difficult this week, in order to catch the exile, you really, there's so much before it, like, like Jeremiah 1-39, to is all precursor here to the Exodus, because for years, He was telling the, the Judeans, repent, Repent. Repent. For 39 chapters. It is amazing. If you read through that, I remember we've read through that several times as a family. As you're reading through it, it's, just, it's amazing how, how Jeremiah in different ways just says, repent. He describes things or he makes imageries or he, he acts out something. and His message is one word. It's repent. And he says again and again and again and again. And the Lord as they refused to repent, sent Judah's enemies against them because they refused to heed the warning of the prophets. You know, a little bit like a child being warned of the coming discipline. Now, this is not good parenting, okay, by the way, but it says, it says this, oh, don't do that or you're going to get it. Don't do that or you're going to get it. Don't do that or you're going to get it. Don't do it or you're going to get it. And then finally they get it. Best is to teach your children to be obedient in all things. That means first time obedience. But there is a way. I know. I know I do that. Kind of slack and leave it. But at some point it comes and judgment day had come because they refused the word spoken through the prophets. Highest among those who refused the word was a king called Manasseh. His story is told here in verses 3 and 4. Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah. Think about this. The command of the Lord it came upon Judah. 
What came upon Judah? Well, the destruction of Judah. It's because God controls pagan nations and accomplishes His will by using pagan nations to accomplish His will. It came about at the command of the Lord upon Judah to remove them from the sight. Here's why. Because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he'd done. We have a summary here in verse 4 of what he did. And also for the innocent blood which he shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not forgive. Perhaps you remember Manasseh. He was a, a wicked king in Judah. Perhaps the most wicked of all the kings. You know, in our day and age, we think about Hitler. Mean, most wicked guy who could walk the planet. We think about Stalin. Wicked guy to walk the planet. And yet in their days, they thought about Judah. Judah, I'm sorry, they thought about Manasseh. Manasseh's the wicked king. Manasseh, oh, he's the most wicked of anything. And he led Judah into idolatry, just like the other kings done, but he went far beyond that. He practiced witchcraft, used divinations, dealt with mediums and spiritists. He, he practiced child sacrifice. That's what it's referring to here in verse 4. Innocent blood which he shed, leading babies to be burned in the fire. Not so much different than abortion today. Really not. But perhaps worst of all, in many ways, he took a carved image, an Asherah, and set it in the temple which Solomon had made. Defiled the holy place. I mean, many kings had a syncretism about them. They, they let the other gods exist, but they still had the Jehovah God, and at least he was separated, set apart. But, but Manasseh took the god of the Asherah and put him right in the middle of the altar. You can read about it in 2 Kings 21. And Manasseh's wickedness lasted 55 years. 55 years of wickedness was too much for the Lord to overlook. It's because of Manasseh's wickedness that God said, I'm going to destroy Judah by taking her into exile. And it's almost as if, it's, it's not that Manasseh was the only wicked guy at this time. It's, it's just that Manasseh was the one who finally tipped the scale. He was the straw that broke the camel's back, taking them into exile. And in light of Manasseh's sin, he said in 2 Kings 21.12, Behold, I'm bringing such a calamity on Jerusalem that whoever hears of it, both of his ears will tingle. In other words, the, the destruction is going to be so bad that if you hear of it, your ears will tingle. You can read the book of Lamentations and see that that is the case. The destruction in those days was horrific. Again, in 2 Kings 21, God described what He was going to do. Verse 13, He says, I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So here's Judah. They're on a dish. They are a dish. And He says, I'm going to take them. I'm going to take my rag out. I'm going to put it underneath the water, and I'm going to just wipe it off. Turn it upside down. Say, it is clean and swept because that's what Babylonian did. Babylonian swept Jerusalem so clean, as we're going to see later, wiped out all the houses, destroyed the temple, it was clean like a platter. Nothing left. You can't live there because there aren't any houses there. There aren't any, any place to dwell because all the dwelling places are gone. He says, 2 Kings 21.14, I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hands of their enemies and they'll become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies because... They've done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. In other words, he says that, that from 1400 B.C., the time of the Exodus, until this time, 900 years, they have been continually provoking me to anger, provoking me to anger, provoking me to anger. And God says, too much to take. Eventually he says, I'm going to wipe them out. The city then became a ghost town. The rich in the land became slaves. Where there used to be laughing, it was replaced with tears and Jerusalem was burned to the ground and leveled. This is not like a highlight um, reel of all the successes of Israel, my message today. This is the result of, of the sin that came upon them. When the day came upon, upon Judah, if you look at verse 10 of chapter 24, it describes how they were taken away. 
This is some years later. It says, At that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mothers and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. Verse 13, He carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord just as the Lord had said. Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest of the people. Taken away in exile. And you know, it's, it's right here you see the difference of what took place in Assyria in the north and Judah in the south. In Assyria in the north, they wiped it clean and then had, had lots of uh, foreigners come and, and dwell up there in the north, in Samaria. But in the south, the result was different. They, they took them away. We see in verse 13 that the leaders of the nations are brought into Babylon, the poor are left in the land. But throughout the rest of the Scriptures, there's no indication that other people came and dwelt in Judah. Where other people did come and dwell in Assyria, and after a while it was unrecognizable that it was even a Jewish place before. But Judah just basically remained empty. It was a ghost town, never being filled. And that's what's different about, uh, about the place where Babylon took Judah away. But Babylon took the Jews away to indoctrinate them in the ways of Babylon. If you capture the culture, you capture the city. And they sought to capture the culture, perhaps send someone back. Daniel was one they sought to capture. We'll see in a little bit. If you influence the leaders, you'll influence the people. And they may even be sent back to Judah to continue their influence. But in verse 15, we see a list of those who have been taken into exile. It says, So he led Jehoiachin, he was a another king of Judah, away into exile to Babylon. He was taken away. Here's the king. It's like taking Obama away. Also, the king's mother and the king's wives and his officials and the leading men of the land, he led away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. And these the king of Babylon brought into exile into Babylon. Thousands of skilled men brought into Babylon. Skilled people, described here as men of valor, craftsmen and smiths. These are the carpenters. These are the tradesmen. These are the ones who can build things. And I think the Babylonians understood that the men of skill, we want over here because they'll build our country for us. But those who are poor, we'll just leave them to be farmers. We'll just let them go. Didn't bring them, left them. It's interesting, as they went, God gave instructions to them. So what do you do? If you're, if you're in Judah, you're taken captive to Babylon, what should you do? Should you revolt in there? Should you serve God? What should you, what should you do? And God's instruction through Jeremiah, you remember Jeremiah 1 through 39 basically was pre-exile, and this is a letter that Jeremiah wrote in chapter 29, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so here at this point, you know, the, the chronology of Jeremiah tends to be jumbled up a little bit, but here in 29, they're, they're in Babylon. And Jeremiah writes a letter to them, says, Thus says the Lord, God says, I've sent them into exile. And again, you've got to see this whole exile thing didn't just happen to come because... Judah was in a period of relative weakness and decline. No, it was God brought. says, I sent you into exile. And he said this. He said, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for the sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare, and you will have welfare. So in other words, go when you go there, live. And live well, and live strong, and build houses, and take wives, and plant gardens. Be productive, in other words. Multiply in your land. Pray for Babylon. Seek her welfare. It's what Babylon wanted. It's what Babylon needed. They needed industrious people who would work for their welfare. 
as pagan as she may be. And I do think here there is application for us in America. That will give us incentive in our day. We live in Babylon. And God instructs us to live, work hard, be productive, build your houses, plant your gardens, get married, multiply the land, seek the welfare of America, and pray for her. Because we're in America as believers in Christ, as strangers and exiles, as 1 Peter 2, 1 says. We are, we are foreigners in a strange land. And our citizenship isn't here. Our citizenship is, Paul says in Philippians 3, is in heaven. But their citizenship was in Jerusalem. But God said, carry on and press on. And God gave instructions to Judah, even though they knew they were coming back. He said, build houses... Plant your gardens, but I'm, I'm bringing you back. And listen to Jeremiah 29, the same chapter. Jeremiah is still writing these people. It says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, okay, keep that in mind, 70 years, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to bring you back into this place. And then here's a verse maybe you've heard quoted before. Jeremiah 29.11, talking about Judah, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I have sent you in exile. So God says it's going to last 70 years. But I'm going to bring you back. And, and, and the whole thing is, I have, I have plans for you. I have plans for welfare and not calamity. And I, I imagine these people in, Ju- in Babylon thinking like, what do you mean you have plans for welfare and not calamity? This is calamitous. Our city is destroyed. It's gone. The temple is wasted. And here we are. We are slaves, essentially. Maybe we have some freedom here in Babylon. What do you mean you have plans for our welfare and not calamity? He says, well, just 70 years. And I'll bring you back. It's one of the great promises in the Bible that God would restore their country. And I just say this, such is the heart of God. Judah, sinful since 1400 B.C. Well, there are times of righteousness, certainly. Lots of times of wickedness. Sinful right up to 600 B.C. God exiles them. And as we should see, still sinful. Some of them, many of them in the exile, and he says, I'm going to bring you back. And that ought to be comfort to your soul that God doesn't give up on His people. It may take us through time of trial, it may take us through time of difficulty, but if you're a child of His, He's not going to give up on you. Though you may be experiencing discipline in a time of exile in your life right now. But just as God has sent into exile, God will also bring back from exile And by the way, this whole sending into exile is God's sovereignty. That is the very assurance you know that He can bring them back. Because if God was powerless and they just happened to go into exile, maybe God can't bring them back. But if God was the one who brought up the nations, raised up Babylon to bring them, to destroy Judah, brought them out, certainly God is able to bring them back. And your comfort in a day of affliction is going to be the sovereignty of God. God has brought the trial for a period, I need to seek Him and pursue Him with all my heart. I'll be, he'll, he'll let me find Him. And when you learn your lessons, then He'll bring you back into the land. And I say this, church family, learn, learn your lessons. Learn them. To be brought back into Jerusalem. Well, chapter 25 continues the exile. We see the third wave coming. Babylon gets the final victory. Now in the ninth year of the reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and his army against Jerusalem, camped against it, built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. If you do your math, they were under siege for two years. Babylon coming up, surrounding the city, starving them out. Terrible circumstance. But in 586, finally they fell. The king is captured and the king is tortured. The ninth day, verse 3, in the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into. It's the warfare back then. Starve them out. Right? No helicopters or planes coming in. You starve them out. Nobody get in. Finally, then the city's broken into and all the men of war fled by night. 
by way of the gate which is between the two walls, besides the king's garden, through the Chaldeans, though the Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went by the way of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. This is something that will make your ear tingle. 6 and 7. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And he passed sentence on him, right? You are guilty. You've been resisting us. You've not submitted to us. You're guilty of war crimes. Here was his punishment. They slaughtered before the sons. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. So here's, here's a father and all his sons are coming up there. Slaughter them before his eyes. Kills all his sons. And this it says, they poked his eyes out, bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. The last thing he saw was the murder of all his sons. Can you imagine that? Are your ears tingling? Such was the devastation that came. A month later, Jerusalem finally was burned. On the seventh day, verse 8, of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan. Catch the name, Nebuzaradan. He'll come up later. The king of Bab- uh, the captain of the guards, he was like the, the commander-in-chief on the ground, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, that is the temple, the king's house, the palace, and all the houses in Jerusalem. Even every great house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans another name for the Babylonians, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the people, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Here is the final exile, taking and exiling them away, wiping Jerusalem clean like one wipes a dish. Verses 13 through 17 explain all the the ways in which the temple was plundered of all its gold, its riches, and silver. Then some more things. And the summary comes down here at the end of verse 21. So Judah was led away into exile from the land. Judah's defeated. Jerusalem's laid waste. The countryside's barren. The temple's pillaged. The precious metals taken away, burned to the ground, king's house destroyed, everything broken down, those of influence brought back to, Gov- to Babylon, and only some of the poor were left in the, the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. I'll just take care of a little bit of the plants. So I think there's application here for us. Just as Judah was driven away in her sin, you may find yourself this morning beaten down, discouraged under God's disciplining hand. Life may seem barren to you this morning. There may be some things in your life where it appears as if God has forsaken you, but know this, God never forsook Judah. Yeah, He destroyed their city. Yeah, He took them away captive, but He didn't forsake His people. Seventy years later, they would return. And why? They returned because God's faithful to His promise. You remember the Davidic covenant. What chapter is the Davidic covenant in? What is it again, again? Second... Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. You were paying attention last week, Garth. That's good for you. Kudos. The stars in your Sunday school badge or something. 2 Samuel 7. He promised that he would rise a king from David. And that's the way, that's why he was, he was faithful to Judah. Because which tribe did David come from? The tribe of Judah. It's no accident that it was the tribe of Judah that was saved in exile because that dynasty had to come down all the way to Jesus. And that's why God was faithful to him. And, and I just say this, if you're in exile in your life right now, if you're his child, God will bring you back. Maybe there are things you need to learn. Learn them well. Well, there's my first point this morning. It's my, my longest of points. At the beginning of the exile. Um, for my second point, I thought what, what I'd like to do is kind of give a glimpse of life during the exile. Now, during the exile, there's two groups of people. One group is living in Judah still because they're the, the poor, right? The, the vine dressers and the plowmen. And another group is exiled. And so I want to look first at those that remained in Judah. It's not encouraging, but my, my point is this, point number two, at home. 
because Jeremiah remained at home. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 40. So right where you are, Chronicles, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 40 explains of how Jeremiah stayed in Judah at the time of the exile. But Jeremiah's ministry, you need to remember, his ministry spanned 40 years, spanned five kings. From Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, and then beyond after Zedekiah was taken off and deported after being tortured by seeing the murder of his sons. And his ministry was much before the exile, but even after the exile he had a ministry as well. But over and over again, like I mentioned before, he was calling Israel, Judah, to repent, repent, repent. Yet the kings were hard towards his message. In fact, it's humorous if you read through Jeremiah some of the things that, that take place. One of the times he wrote a scroll, he wrote a message to one of the kings. It was Jehoiachin. And uh, when Jehoiakim, rather. And, and he sent this message to it, but you can't just send the message to the king. You know, first you've got to go through the cabinet and things like that. And some of the, the men who read it were fearful of just what it said about the coming doom of Judah. But when it came time to read before the king... Only three or four columns was read, and the king said, that's enough. He grabbed it out of the scribe's hand who was reading it and threw it into the fire and burned the whole thing. How would you like to have that if you write a letter to the president? He takes it out of the reader's hand, throws it in the fire, says, I don't want to hear this. Such was the hardness of the hearts in Jeremiah's day. I mean, that, that's the way he was facing when he was preaching. Another occasion, he was prisoned by Zedekiah. And uh, Zedekiah was perturbed at what Jeremiah was saying. I think this is hilarious. He says... Um, Jeremiah said, why am I in prison? Why, why am I here? And Zedekiah said this, Why do you prophesy saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm about to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, that's me, will not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but will surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. And, and he will speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. And he will take Zedekiah to Babylon and he will be there until I visit him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Chaldeans, you will not succeed. In other words, Zedekiah is saying this, Hey, are you a faithful servant in our country? Why are you prophesying that we're going we're gonna to lose to Babylon? And I can understand why Zedekiah imprisoned him. You can't, can't tolerate pessimists in a time of war. Jeremiah was a pessimist. Better yet, probably he was a realist. He knew it was going to take place. And as prophesied, the Babylonians came in, conquered the land... Zedekiah has taken off exactly the word. But, but you need to understand that Jeremiah was right in the middle of things. He was in the city when it was to be surrounded and starved. And in fact, he wrote about much of what he saw in the book of Lamentations. He says in Lamentations 1.1, How lonely sits the city that once was full of people. She's come, become like a widow who once was great among the nations. Desolate. Jeremiah also said this, The roads of Zion are in mourning because no one comes to the appointed feast. All her gates are desolate. Her priests are groaning. Her virgins are afflicted. And she herself is bitter. He lived right through the Babylonian capture of the city. He had an opportunity to leave and go to Babylon, but, but he chose to remain and minister to the remnant that was there. He chose to stay with the poor. If you look in chapter 40, verse 1, I just want to read this to give you a sense of it. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after, here's the guy again, Nebuzaradan, captain of the bodyguard, had released him from Ramah, where he was imprisoned by Zedekiah, because he said they're going to conquer, and they did conquer. He had taken him and bound him in chains among all the exiles of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. Now the captain of the bodyguard, this, check this out, this is a, this is a Babylonian warrior, a Babylonian captain, if you will, or a general. He had taken Jeremiah and said to him, the Lord your God promised this calamity against this place. And the Lord has brought it on and done just as He had promised. He is recognizing that we are victorious because your God said that we would be victorious. And then he even tells them why they're victorious. Because you people sinned against the Lord. And Jeremiah is probably saying, well, no, duh, that's what I've been telling these people all the time. And they did not listen to his voice. Therefore, this thing has happened to you. But now behold, I'm freeing you today. 
Because Jeremiah might be seen as one who is on Babylonian side since he prophesied a Babylonian victory. Taking you from the chains which are in your hands. If you prefer to come with me to Babylon, come along and I will look after you. I'll give you a good place in Babylon. But if you'd prefer not to come with me to Babylon, never mind. Look at the whole land that's before you. Go wherever it seems good and right for you to go. And Jeremiah here is like, I don't know what to go. Should I, should I go? I've got some safety promised over here, but I've got these poor people that I love over here. And he was just kind of standing there. And finally, Nebuzaradan had to say, as Jeremiah was still not going back, Nebuzaradan said, Go on back then to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon, that's Nebuchadnezzar, has appointed over the cities of Judah, and stay with him among the people, or else go anywhere it seems right to you to go. So the captain of the bodyguard gave him a ration, right, gave him some food and a gift, and let him go. He says, you, just, you dwell among your people. I'm going back to Babylon. Then Jeremiah went to Mizpah, to Gedaliah. Now, Gedaliah was the one who was set up to rule and reign over Judah, whatever few were left there, as the rest went off to Babylon. He was the son of Ahikam who stayed with him among the people who were left in the land. Now, the reason why... Jeremiah went to Mizpah and not Jerusalem. You'd think if someone's reigning over Judah, they'd be in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was so destroyed that even the king and the ruler was in Mizpah instead. There's no place in Jerusalem. And, and, and I, I want to show you that here in the, in the land of Babylon at home, things were in turmoil. You know, this is, um, this is Iraq, if you will, in some sense. It's come, conquered, it's in turmoil. What do we do? Babylon's left, exited. We, we're a war-torn country. We got this Gedaliah who's appointed by Nebuchadnezzar, and, and what should we do? Gedaliah eventually was murdered. Chapter 41 tells a story. I mean, obviously, if you're a puppet of King Nebuchadnezzar, you're not public hero number one, you're public enemy number one. He was murdered. People didn't know what to do, they were afraid. Well, Babylon might come for revenge because we killed their appointed king. They have thoughts about going down to Egypt. Well, if we go down to Egypt, then we'll, we'll be safe because we'll be free from the. The wrath of the king of Babylon, and they didn't know what to do, and so they, they sought out Jeremiah and they said, Jeremiah, what should we do? And so here I just want to show you Jeremiah is still among his people, still prophesying, still giving them counsel. Chapter 42, and I'm going to read all of chapter 42 for you, because I think it gives you a good, a good picture of what's taking place. When all the commanders of the forces, Johanan the son of Kariah, Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people, both great and small, approached and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Please, let our petition come before you and pray for us to the Lord, your God. That is for all this remnant, because we are left here but a few out of many, as your eyes now have seen us. You know, it's difficult to trace down exactly how many went back to Babylon. Thousands. How many were left back in Judah? <clears throat> they said few, probably more left than were there. <clears throat> Thousand, couple thousand, not, not very many. It means lots of people were destroyed, lots of people killed. The, the population of Judah had gone way down. And he said, Pray for the remnant, because we're a few. Verse 3, Pray that the Lord your God may tell us the way in which we should walk and the things that we should do. And then Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I've heard you. Behold, I'm going to pray to the Lord your God in accordance with the words and I will tell you the whole message which the Lord will answer you. I will not keep back a word from you. They said to Jeremiah, All right, this is Israel all the time. Amen. We will do everything you say. May the Lord be true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with the whole message which the Lord your God will send you to us. I'm setting you up here a little bit. Whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, we will listen to the voice of the Lord your God, our God to whom we are sending you so that it may go well with us when we listen to the voice of the Lord our God. So Jeremiah went off, verse 7, and at ten days the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And then he called for Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the commanders of the forces with, that were with him and for all the people both great and small. So in other words, what should we do? Should we go down to Egypt? Shall we stay here? Shall we... Go to, what, what should we do, Jeremiah? Whatever God tells you to do, we're going to follow that. Whether it's good or whether it's bad, we're going to follow it. And verse 9, Jeremiah then gathered all the people and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition before him. If you will indeed stay in this land, and then, we'll, then I will build you up 
and not tear you down, and I will plant you and not uproot you. For I will relent concerning the calamity I have inflicted upon you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you are now fearing. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. I will also show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your own soil. He's got to say how typical that is of God. Here is Judah and the people there were rebellious, sinful since the exodus. They refused to listen to Jeremiah for years. To saying, repent or Babylon's going to come and destroy. Here Jeremiah then comes again with a message of mercy that says, if you stay here and if you build, I'm going to help you. I'm going to plant you again. I'll make you secure in the land. I will protect you from the king of Babylon. You say, why, why is he extending his mercy? I think it's pretty simple. Do you think, who are these people? They're the poor. They're the farmers of the land. They're the simple folk. And God always looks down upon those who are poor and downcast. It's like all the rich and the erudite. We're out of the land. These are the poor. These guys are broken. They're looking to me. I'll show you mercy. Just stay here. But there's a condition they needed to believe. Verse 13. But if you're going to say, we will not stay in this land so as not to listen to the voice of the Lord your God, saying, no, but we will go to the land of Egypt where we will not see war or hear the sound of a trumpet or hunger for bread and we will stay there. Then in that case, if you go down to Egypt, in that case, the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you really set your mind to enter Egypt and go to reside there, then the sword which, of which you are afraid of will overtake you there in the land of Egypt and the famine about which you are anxious will follow closely after you there in Egypt and you will die there. So all the men who set their mind to go to Egypt to reside there will die by the sword by famine and by pestilence and they will have no survivors or refugees from the calamity that I am going to bring upon them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and wrath have been poured out on my inhabitants of Jerusalem... And they saw that. They saw his wrath and anger poured out on Jerusalem. He says, So my wrath will be poured out on you when you enter Egypt. And you will become a curse, an object of horror, an imprecation, and a reproach. And you will see this place no more. The Lord has spoken to you, O remnant of Judah. Do not go into Egypt. Typical message of Jeremiah. He says... Follow the Lord. If you follow Him, ways are going to be good. Obey Him. God has your welfare in mind. But if you disobey Him, it's going to be bad with you. Just as Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem, so when you go down there, the Egyptians are going to destroy you. Don't go. Stay right here. I will take care of you. Now you'd think that they would say, you know what, Jeremiah, he's, he's, a, he's a pretty fair prophet. I mean, he, his, his predictions are pretty good. We saw him predict about Babylon long before even Babylon came, and he stood true, and Babylon sure enough came. Zedekiah taken away. He wasn't killed. He was taken away. Just like Jeremiah said, everything he said came true. Surely we should trust him, right? Well, sadly, the people of Israel didn't learn their lesson. Look at chapter 43. But as soon as Jeremiah, whom the Lord, their God, had sent, had finished telling all the people, all the words of the Lord their God. That is all these words. Azariah the son of Hoshiah and Johanan the son of Kariah and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, You're telling a lie! Here's a guy who's told his truth his whole life and they're saying he's telling a lie. Where's that promise about whether it's good or bad we're going to follow you? It was, it was good, Right? The good was to stay in the land and God had blessed you. But they wanted to go down to Egypt. And down to Egypt was bad. And they didn't even accept that. They said, you're a liar. The Lord our God has not sent you to say you are not to enter Egypt to reside there, verse 3. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to give us over into the hands of the Chaldeans so they will put us to death or exile us to Babylon. So Johanan, the son of Kari, and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to stay in the land of Judah. But Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the commanders of the forces took the entire remnant of Judah who had returned from all the nations to which they had been driven away in order to reside in the land of Judah. 
the men, the women, the children, the king's daughters, and every person that Nebuzaradan, there's that guy again, the captain of the bodyguard had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the grandson of Shaphan, together with Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch the son of Neriah, and they entered the land of Egypt. Here's again, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord and went in as far as Tapanes. The entire remnant, whoever's left in Judah, left. So now it was truly a ghost town with nobody there. You know, doors on their hinges going, blowing in the wind because they're all gone. Not just a few people trying to manage the houses. They're all gone. They all went off to Egypt, including Jeremiah because he wanted to shepherd the people. Even though they said go, he went down to Egypt as well. Where seven, nine hundred years earlier they had been delivered out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God. Now they come back into Egypt a defeated people. Here's an interesting thing to note. My study this week, I thought, you know, whatever happened to these people in Egypt? I don't remember hearing anything about them. So I looked in the Bible to try to find anything about these people. Like particularly Ezra and Nehemiah coming back into the land. Like, like maybe they came back from Babylon with Ezra and Nehemiah, what we're going to study next week. Coming back in the land, building up Jerusalem. Maybe you read about some people from Egypt who came up. The Bible's totally silent. They're gone, they're done, they're disobedient. God wiped them out, I'm sure. Nothing is mentioned of them. The extending of God's loving kindness, though, is amazing. I think that's the thing you have to strike here is that these people have been disobedient and God still gives them an opportunity. They had their chance and they blew it. Well, maybe you're here today and God has given you yet another opportunity. Maybe God's been patient with you. He's given you another opportunity. I say learn from the Judeans. They erred in sinning. They should have believed Jeremiah. So believe Him and trust Him. Well, that took place at home. Now let's look at my third point. Let's look at what took place abroad. We see at the beginning of the exile. I want to give you two snippets of life uh, in the exile. One was at home in Judah, and now let's go to Babylon. Let's go abroad. Uh, the best place to do that is the book of Daniel. Um, Ezekiel, by the way, is another prophet who uh, basically spent all his time in Babylon. And I thought, oh, maybe this week, maybe Ezekiel would be a good one, but you know, Ezekiel is filled mostly with uh, prophetic urgings and, and comforts and helps. Um, really difficult to see a, a glimpse of, of his life there. But Daniel, we see a glimpse of his life. So you can turn over there if, if you haven't already. I know that most of you are probably familiar with the story of Daniel. He's a young man in Judah. Growing up in the exile, in the early days, all he knew was war. He knew Babylon coming against them. They were the enemy. He was a young man taken captive into Babylon. We'll see that because he's described as a youth. I want to pick up the story right at Daniel 1.1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, he's one of the last three kings, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay, this is the attack on Judah. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar, that is back in Babylon, to the house of his God, and brought the vessels of the treasury into the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and the nobles, youths. That's referring to Daniel even here as a youth in whom is no defect. Daniel was a handsome man. He was good looking, showing intelligence. Daniel was a smart guy. In every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the new commanders, the officials, assigned new names to them. To Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. 
trying to get a sense of what life was like in Babylon. Now, not everybody was treated like Daniel. Uh, Daniel was, um, in some sense, elite. He got to go into the king's palace. Um, you think about what happened to the skilled craftsmen. Well, they're probably out working, probably building Babylon for the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. Those who were capable probably were enlisted into the Babylonian army. And whoever else had abilities was probably used by the Babylonians to build their kingdom, however. And David, Daniel, being, being a youth, um, perhaps was useful, but was better useful if he took three years of this training. He was a youth. We don't know how old that is. Uh, my guess is a young teenager. 13, 14 maybe. Because he showed some um, literature aptitude. He showed some understanding, some wisdom. And he was placed in this school in the family, a private school, a private public school, a private secular school, Babylonian school, to train him in the ways of the kingdom of Babylon. In some ways, it's like going off to a Buddhist school or a Hindu school, something non-Christian, decidedly Babylonianish, if that's a word, Babylonianish. Life was very good for Daniel. He lived a life of luxury. In the school of the kings, the governor, learning the things of the government, learning to be a leader, had the finest teachers, the finest food available to him. But surely it was difficult for him in these days too. I mean, he, he was ripped from his family. Can you imagine being 12, 13, 15 years old, ripped from your family, off at a boarding school someplace? He had to learn a new language. He didn't speak Hebrew there in Babylon. He had to learn literature. He was taught, it says there, the, the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. They sought to indoctrinate the young boys, even giving them Babylonian names. Right? This man, Belteshazzar, was his name. We can only imagine what it was like for him and for others in Judah. I think about whatever, the, the normal person in Judah, though. My guess is that if they came over, they were treated like immigrants. Probably in the worst sense of the word. Some without their green card who works in the field, works hard for sweat labor, trying to eke out a living. And we know they face, face some mocking. In Psalm 137, we give an insight into the, the Jewish life in Babylon. They said, Psalm 137, By the rivers of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So you see these people, immigrants in a foreign land, weeping because they remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst we hung our harps. In other words, we... We can't sing here in this land. We've put our instruments away. We've hung them on the willows because we're sad. We're thinking about our Zion, which is destroyed. And their heart was there. So physically, they were in Babylon. For there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And so you get an idea here in Psalm 137 that they were, they were, they were captured people. They're tormentors. Their captors were telling them, hey, sing us a song of Zion. Uh, you want to know what a Zion, song of Zion would have been like? You know Jewish songs, right? Lie, 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 Good thing that's not on YouTube, Darren. <laughs> Sing us a song of Zion. And you know what? It just, it just doesn't fit. Because in Zion was tragedy and was sorrow. They couldn't sing one of those Jewish festive songs. And Psalm 137 verse 4 says, How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Because they were sad and they were oppressed. It was not a happy time. They couldn't sing a happy song because it wasn't happy in Babylon. They were really facing the suffering, the consequence of their sin. And I, I do sense here in Psalm 137, there's mocking. Oh, sing us one of those Hebrew songs for us. Come on, sing us the song of Zion. Just mocking them, their captors are their tormentors. He said, we're in a foreign land. We want to be home. We want to be in Jerusalem. We've been captive. We can't sing. Our harps are on the willows. We're not going to sing. 
I think life and difficult was difficult for godly Jews who lived there, who had a heart in Jerusalem. In Daniel chapter 3, even, we see the, the statute that Nebuchadnezzar made, right? When the music plays, you bow down to my God. If you're a godly Jew in Babylon at that time, it's going to be very difficult to stay pure because you lose your life. And these three men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were thrown into the fire because they didn't bow down. And so likewise, if you were an upright Jew in Babylon, refusing to fall down to the Babylonian gods, it was a difficult, difficult time. But surely some remain true. And we'll see next week, we look at uh, Nehemiah remained true, Ezra remained true, and a remnant came back and they were true. But it was difficult. So it's difficult at home, they're disobedient, difficult abroad. And now, we've seen the beginning of the exile. I want us to look now at the end of the exile. Just, just a glimpse of what it was like at the end. And that comes in Daniel chapter 9. So, let's turn over there. I only have a few minutes left. And Daniel chapter 9 finds Daniel, like in his 80s or 90s, I'm guessing at this point. Daniel 9 verse 1 says, In the first year of Darius... The son of Ahasuerus. So all of a sudden, ooh, I've taken you way ahead. The, the Babylonian Empire has fallen. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. Belshazzar has passed on. It's the Persian Empire now that has come and taken over. So Daniel is no longer under the Babylonian rule. He's under the Persian rule. It happened within the 70 years. Darius of Median descent, who was the king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans because the Babylonians have been conquered at this point. In the first year of the reign... I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophets for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay, a couple things are happening here. First of all, I don't think it's an accident that here in the first year of his reign he was looking at these books. I think may have the, the, the Jewish literature may have been restricted from him a little bit, but now a new king has come. Maybe there's some freedom. Maybe he's looking into some of these books. But he's looking at them at the first year. He's having his daily devotions in the book of Jeremiah. And he's reading chapters like Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah chapter 29. And as he's, he's reading these things, he's reading about the, the exile to Babylon. And it talks about how in 70 years I'm going to bring you back. And so, so Daniel's out here, hmm, 70 years. Let's see, when was that? We were exiled, uh, let's see, 586 B.C. was really... The final time, and we took us out there 70. <laughs> That's like next year. It is coming soon. God's promise is coming, and He's going to bring us back. He's going to reconcile us. And so, what is David's response? It's very interesting here. This is the response needed before the exile. This is a response needed by those at home in the exile. This is a response needed by those abroad in the exile. It's one of repentance. Look what he says in verse 3. When I realized that the return was coming soon, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Basically, he repented. And Daniel was a righteous man, but still repenting. I'd love to take the time, but we're not going to. I'd love to take the time to read the whole passage here. Um, it speaks about how gracious God is and how we as a country have sinned. And God, you've been gracious. Pleading forgiveness and pleading grace and pleading kindness. Verse 15, let's just put it. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, have made a name for yourself, and it is this day, we have sinned and we have been wicked. It's interesting how Daniel takes to himself the sins of the people. Am I do well for us as well to look at the sins of our country. That maybe even if you weren't involved in them, they still are in our land. In some sense, to the measure of God, be gracious to us. O oh Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem and your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach 
to all those around. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. There it is. (laughs) The supplications aren't on our merits. They are on your compassion, O God. Isaac Watts said, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's how we always come before God. Don't ever try to say, God, look at all the things I've done for you. Shouldn't you do this for me? No, it's always God. I'm just pleading your loving kindness. Be gracious to me, God. That's how Daniel prays. O Lord, verse 19, Hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake, O my God, and do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. You promised seven years. Seven years are coming. We still have not sought you in total forgiveness like we ought to, but I'm seeking you in repentance now. God, fulfill your plan for us. Bring us back into the land. Restore us. Well, it's, it's very interesting. Look at verse 23. Uh, an angel comes, Gabriel, and uh, he says, At the beginning of your supplications, a command was issued. I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message, gain understanding of the vision. He says, listen, let me tell you, you're highly esteemed in God's sight. Here was one walking righteously in a wicked society, and he was highly esteemed. God listened to him. And then there's this prophecy of the 70 weeks in the Messiah. And we don't have time to get into this, but let me just say this. He says, 70 weeks, verse 24, have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, make an end to sin, make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. 70 weeks. If we had more time, this is 70 years of sevens. It's about 490 years. So there's 490 years left and we're going to make then an end to sin is what we're going to do. Look, look, at these, look at these descriptions. We're going to bring atonement for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, we're going to make an end to sin, we're going to finish the transgression. you have any idea how that was done? Maybe you might know. But know this, 25. You are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem... Until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks and it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. That's difficult to do all the math exactly right. I'm not sure exactly how it fits, but we're talking time frames about 500 years. Um, This is about 500 B.C. We're coming up to about 0 B.C. And then it says this, very interesting... Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Was the Messiah cut off? Yeah, he was cut off. This is prophesying of the death of Christ who's going to come. He's going to make an end to sin. He's going to finish the transgression. He's going to make an end, make atonement for iniquity. He's going to seal up everlasting righteousness. And that is in Jesus. And that indeed came exactly according to schedule. And that's what took place at the end of the exile. So think about, think about what took place. Danny hears the end of the exile. He says, okay, it's going to be 70 years and it's coming and we're in like the 69th and it's please restore us, God. And God says, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not just going to restore you to the land. I'm going to provide the Messiah to come who's going to bring an end to sin to finish this Judah rebellion forever because there's going to be a king that sits on my throne who's going to be the one to bow to and the one to look to. And so at the end of the exile, it's not just, oh, you're going to get back to the land. It's, no, we're going to bring in someone who's going to provide everlasting righteousness, and he's the one that you're looking for, prophesied some 500 years later. That's the great promise, that Jesus Christ is coming. That's the story of the exile. The beginning, they needed repentance. In the middle, they needed repentance. In Babylon, they needed repentance. At the end, they needed repentance. But God said, even despite all that, there's going to be a Messiah who's going to bring an end to all that sin. And and boy, if you are in exile today and, and not seeing the glories of Jesus, I just call you to, to look to Him. Because He's the one that ends our transgression. So let me pray, and then we're going to sing one more song.
Lord, I thank you for your word, which is so interesting, so vast, and more could easily have been told. We skipped over Ezekiel, 48 chapters in the Bible. We just skimmed the surface of Jeremiah, skimmed the surface of Daniel, and yet, Lord, I would pray, even as I spoke earlier, may our, may our mission in this series be accomplished. May you help us to see and understand the, the message of your Scripture, that you deal with sin, that you bring people into exile. You do that. And that you bring them back again. And I pray at Rock Valley Bible Church we'd be a people of repenters who repent of our sin. God, that you keep us and protect us from exile. And I do pray, even as I have heard, I pray for our country. I think of how sinful we are. And we don't have any promises in the Scripture like Daniel had of, of any restoration of America. But as abortion reigns in our land, I think as um, uh, our rulers continue to spend money that we don't have to bring us into a debt that's worse and worse all the time, when um, homosexuality is, is rising up to be accepted and you can't discriminate against it, when God is being taken out every place of our society... All we can say is, God, we have sinned greatly against you and pray that you would so stir in our hearts that we would be people to call people back to righteousness and to holy living and we plead your mercy upon our country. But I thank you that whether America survives or not, uh, we do have Jesus who is uh, fairer than 10,000. He is the, the Messiah that was cut off for our sins. He died so that we might live and in that, Lord, we can rejoice. And I pray you'd help us to rejoice. You are indeed a great God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to have the musicians come. We're going to sing this, this song last time, one last time, Oh Great God, since it is a, a new one for us.